identity that you could literally cut with a knife. And uh, so very uncomfortable in many, many ways. But my son Paul got kind of upset at me because I don't sweat like other people sweat. And uh, he, he's a sweater, and so his shirt would be drenched with sweat. And here I am just walking along with relatively dry. The only time I really sweated was when we went on our hike through the jungle. Uh, and I, I, just, I was soaked then because it was so hot in the jungle. I couldn't hardly believe it. So I got to do things that many people never in their life would be able to do. And Paul said there's only a handful of Westerners or white people that have actually placed their feet where I placed mine in the jungles of Indonesia. So I, was, I, I felt very privileged to do that. I felt privileged to meet the people whom God has saved and brought into his family, our brothers, our sisters in Christ, among the Korowai and among the Donny people, and to get to know them and to... To be able to touch them and, uh, and love on them was indeed a blessing. I appreciate so much the church uh, putting some of the cost for that trip. And uh, so I thank you for that. It's a, something I will never forget. <clears throat> I talked about it this morning in FIT. And next week I will be talking about it in FIT as well. And I'll be showing uh, Paul's pictures and videos that he took uh, there in the jungle. So so I hope you'll be able to come next Sunday morning at 9 and see that, see those. That'll be the last time I'll show any pictures. Uh, Heart Cry, Paul told me Heart Cry is going to try to make a video of, of my time in Indonesia for Bethany. So we'll, we'll wait on that until it's done. But I appreciate so much your prayers. And I know, I know you were praying, and uh, I was totally healthy through the whole time there. Everything was just absolutely normal until I got back here. <laughs> and then on Monday morning, I started feeling sick. And uh, I still feel that way some now. So I've got some tests I have to do this week. So you pray that God will find, uh, allow the doctors to find out what's going on. With me, Paul got sick too, so I'm not alone. But uh, you know, this often happens when you go into third world countries and you come back. But this morning, <clears throat> when I was away, I thought about some of the things that uh, had taken place before I left with uh, with some of you, with some of you that are not here. Um, Things that were taught from John chapter 6, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, uh, particularly on the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I thought, <clears throat> I didn't feel like coming in and studying this week, and so I have gone to a previous message that I preached years ago, back about 04, 05, when I was here, when I taught through the book of Ephesians, which is one of my favorite books of all. And so I'm going to concentrate this morning, <clears throat> if you'll bear with me on my clearing my throat. With a, I've had a cough all week long, and so I appreciate you bearing with me. I want you to notice uh, in, this, 
in this passage and what I've been teaching from John, and I'll be back in John 11, Lord willing, next week, but what I've been teaching from John and from this passage is a challenge to many people. And I understand that because it was a challenge to me when I first began, when God first began to reveal to me the truths that are, are found in His plan of salvation for mankind. And so, it being a challenge to some, but a blessing to others. Uh, now, it is a blessing to me to stand and to, to speak on these things. And sometimes it's even confusing to people. I've had people come to me and say, I'm confused about all of this. So what, what, what does it mean that God is sovereign, but man is responsible <clears throat> for his sin? How can that be? And honestly, I don't know how they can coexist. Because God commands men to repent. At the same time, they cannot repent. And they cannot and will not believe. How does that fit together? I don't know. And neither do you. Some things we have to leave to God's understanding. And so, it is never our intention to confuse people. It's always... We want to bring light out of these passages. And so I, I thought that if I come here to this passage this morning, which has these truths in it, that maybe it would be of a help to everyone. Verses 3 through 14 of this first chapter of Ephesians is a long, one long, continuous sentence in the original language where Paul mounts one expletive on top of another uh, he, he intends to bring to light the glory of God in salvation. He does that in a way that is almost a hymn of praise. Uh, Dr. Charles Erdman called it the hymn of praise. And the first stanza, verses 1 through 6, right, we see God the Father as he, as he is the subject of salvation. And the chorus closes in verse 6 to the praise of of his glorious grace. And then in the second stanza relates to the present. The first one to the past. This one to the present. And we see the Son of God as the subject. And it concludes with the refrain to the praise of his glory in verse 12. And the third stanza, it's verses 11 through 14, relates to the future. And this, in this one, we see the God, the Holy Spirit, as the subject, and it concludes with the refrain, "Unto the praise of His glory." These three stanzas are bound into a harmonious unity by the recurring references to Christ in Him, in the Beloved, in Christ, in whom. We are blessed. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And in Him, amen to the glory of God through us, Paul says in the Second Corinthians. Now, Paul is, <clears throat> Paul is really giving to the Ephesian people what God is doing in salvation. And as he usually does, he starts with the Jew first. The we, in verse 11, 
is a distinct group of people, compromised uh, or, or, thank you, John. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> the, uh, the work of God is, we see in verses 3 through 6, the plan of God as revealed in reference to the past. And in verses 13 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit is referenced as work to the future. And then, of course, the present, verses 7 through 12, is where we're still dealing. He says we in verse 11, which seems to be a distinct group of people. And I think it is a distinct, distinct group. I think he's talking about the Jews, because the Jews were the first ones to have the gospel preached to them. But later on, we see that he includes the Gentiles in verse, in verse 11, where he talks about, uh, uh, in verse 13, excuse me, where he talks about you also, which are Gentile believers. So God has taken people from these two groups on the earth, the Israelites and the Gentiles, and he has woven them together into one group, which is his church. Now, how has he done this? That's the answer, or that's the question. And what does it look like for God to use this or bring about this salvation in the lives of his people who are scattered across the earth in both Jew and Gentile? We can divide this section in verses 11 and 12 into two parts, because that's where I want to concentrate. Where he says there, we have obtained an inheritance and been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his own will. So that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There are two perspectives that we can see here. There is the divine perspective and there is the human perspective. And they all sort of are wrapped up in this word inheritance in verse 11. Now, we just read in verse 10 how everything in heaven and earth is going to be unified in Christ. That has not happened yet. There are still people around the world that, have, that God has not brought into his fold yet. There are still people that he has that are not believers, that are not a part of the church universal yet. They're still lost. We call them lost sheep. The Israelites were, the Jews were sent, the first disciples were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see them going to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were being brought in. The words we have obtained an inheritance translates one single Greek compound word. When something was to happen in the future that was so certain that it would happen, the Greeks would often use this word to speak of it as already Having happened. The not yet, but already, we might say. And so he uses this word 
to say that we have obtained an inheritance. Well, what is the inheritance? The inheritance is the full salvation that God has given to us in Christ. Which includes not only salvation of our souls now, but the salvation of our bodies in the future. That hasn't happened yet. We're still living in mortal bodies that are subject to sin and subject to time and subject to this world. But we've received the inheritance, which is in the passive voice, which says that God has given it to us and we own it already. Now, as a comparison to that, if you look at chapter 2, verse 6, it says that he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, that's the active voice. We are actively seated in the heavenlies with Christ spiritually. Not literally yet, but it is so sure that we can say that we're seated there with Him. That we're already with Him. I've often said to people, I'm so sure for heaven, I'm as sure for heaven as if I were already there. And you are too in Christ. And so God looks at this from His vantage point As a completed thing. He sees it from the very beginning to the very end. Something we can't do. We don't know what the future holds for us. We may may end up in a great deal of persecution before that happens. Certainly there are people in many places in the world that are already there in that regard. Now the first rendering of this word, inheritance, there's two ways to look at it, two perspectives. The, the first one is that we see the inheritance as the believer being Christ's inheritance. In Christ, the believer is God's chosen portion or private possession. Do you realize that you do not belong to yourself? Paul plainly says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body which belongs to God. You don't own yourself. Oh, we're raised to think that. We're not our own. We've been bought with the greatest price that heaven could afford. The blood of God's Son. The saints have been predestined to this inheritance. Now, don't be scared by that word. Uh, People are often scared of the word predestination. It's a biblical term. It is a biblical doctrine. There's no need to be afraid uh, of talking about it. But many have a problem with it. And I'll tell you why they have a problem with it. 
Because it gives the idea that we're not in control. If God predestined us for himself, then where's our control in it? Answer? We don't have any control. There's no control. God is the one who is doing this work. God is the one who calls. God is the one who wakens us in new birth. He is the one who, re- who creates us new in Christ. It's all His work. We are His possession. We are His inheritance. Your people are your inheritance. Deuteronomy 9.29 Jacob is the place of his inheritance, he says. And we see that in John. We've seen it in John 6. We've seen it in John chapter 10. We'll see it again in John chapter 17. We are his inheritance. Jesus often talked about the people that come to him that are his, his sheep, being given to him by his father as an inheritance. So from eternity past, the father planned and determined that every person who would be called his own would trust in his son for salvation and would be given to his son as a possession and a glorious inheritance to the to Christ. That, that humbles me greatly because I don't feel worthy to be his inheritance. And I'm not worthy to be that. And yet God the Father has chosen to make me that. The other the other way to look at this is that Just the opposite, that the believer has an inheritance from Christ. Peter talks about it. He says this, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. We do have an inheritance in Christ. Paul writes in to, Timothy, to uh, Titus, that we have been justified by His grace and we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He writes in Romans chapter 8 that we are His children and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That means <coughs> that means that all that Christ has is mine and all that Christ has is yours. By an incredible miracle that only God can understand and comprehend, every believer has been to the cross with Christ, has been nailed there spiritually with Him, and has been buried with Him, and has been risen with Him to new life. Now, I don't know how God did that. The only thing I can say is He did it by His, by his omnipotent power. To make it so. Jesus Christ was not only crucified, buried, and raised for every believer, but with every believer. One day, that glorious day, when when it's all final, it will all become, we will all become conformed to the image of His Son completely. We're, right now, we're just in process. 
We're just going along in, in step after step after step of sanctification until one day we are glorified completely. And quite frankly, I'm ready for that day to come. Everything is ours. Everything is mine. Christ belongs to me. The scriptures belong to me. Even death belongs to me. All of it is mine and yours because he has given it to us in Christ. This is God's perspective. What a what a great what a great inheritance he has given us in Christ Jesus, which means that there is no condemnation. When we stand before Him. We won't stand before Him as a judge who, who looks down at us with, with the bars of justice before Him. No, He looks down at us as His children. And beckons us to Himself. To crawl up into His lap and be comforted and held by Him. There are no words of judgment. Only words of Comfort. We're not worthy for it, but we have it nonetheless. Now, let's look at this divine perspective. We see it in verse 11 that these are the functions of the Holy Spirit. There are three things that we find here in verse 11. And twelve. First is God's predestination. He says being predestined according to the purpose of Him. You are not predestined because of the purpose of you. This is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about everything... Being brought to one head in Christ. So that Christ Jesus is glorified in what the Father has done through the work of the Holy Spirit. Predestined. As Christians, we are what we are because God chose to make us that before anyone was ever created. Before the world existed, before God spoke the universe into existence, when there was nothing there but God in His triune being, God planned all of history and all of eternity to come to pass the way He wanted it to come. You you were involved in that as as a part of it. And I was involved in it. But I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't in existence yet. And neither were you. But in the mind of God, He had it all planned out. He knew you and saw you. And as one of His own, He drew you to Himself. And saved you and made you His child. To bring to pass what He planned in eternity past. That blows my mind. I can't even conceive it. I can't even understand it. 
And yet, it's true. Now the word predestined here in in verse 11 is not the same word that's used in verse 4 where it says he chose us. That's a different word. This word predestined in verse 11 is a word that's only used here. It's used nowhere else in the New Testament. It means to cast a lot or to determine, to choose or appoint by lot. So in this context, it would be best rendered to be chosen, to be appointed, to be destined for something. I said this morning when we were watching, looking at the slides and things and Paul in the, in the jungle, I said he was, <clears throat> Paul was destined to this. He, he, he was, this is his, this is what God predestined him for. To go into that jungle and be with those people. He has a connection with them that I don't see in anyone else. Even the even their own. The Jewish believers were chosen because they were predestined for something. So in this verse, Paul is actually carrying the argument a bit further, showing that having first predestined us to salvation, how God chooses those who have been chosen To work out his purposes. That's part of the predestining work of God. He not only chooses those. But then sets the course of their lives. To bring about his purpose in salvation. And each one of us have a little different niche. That we fit into in that. Now multiply that millions of times around the world. It's an amazing thing that God can do that with every single believer around the world at the same time to bring about his purpose and his work of salvation. William Hendrickson, the Bible commentator, writes, Neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. The benevolent purpose that we should be holy and faultless sons of God, destined to glorify Him forever, is fixed, being a part of a larger, universe-embracing plan. Not only did God make this plan that includes absolutely all things that ever take place in heaven or on earth, or in hell, past, present, or future, or in heaven, or even in the future, pertaining to both Believers and unbelievers, to angels and demons, to physical as well as spiritual energies and units of existence, both large and small. He also wholly carries it out. Think about it. Every circumstance, every movement of every molecule is under his control and moves by his plan. Charles Spurgeon said, if one molecule goes rogue, then God is not sovereign. His divine intervention in time is as comprehensive as his decree in eternity. 
God's predestination. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. Love it. It's the reason you're here. It's the reason you have salvation. Because He chose you as a part of His plan to carry out His purpose all the way to the very end in the future. Second, we see God's power. Notice in verse 11, He also says, which He, <clears throat> making known, let's see, where is verse 11? There it is. Um, the inheritance have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's working everything out the way He designed it to be worked out and not one single problem will come to hinder it. You say all the, all the different various things that happen in the world, all of the evil, all of the terrible catastrophes and tragedies that take place don't hinder God's plan. No, they are involved in it. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is completing us. Nothing that comes into our lives or goes out of our lives is a mistake. This is the second function of the Spirit. To supply the energy that is needed to bring God's predestination work to completion. <clears throat> he is working all things. Now the word works in, the, in verse 11 is the Greek word energeo. It's where we get our English word energy or energetic or energize. I often think of the energizer bunny when I think of when I see this word. He just never stops. He just keeps on going. This is what the word means. So when the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters and God spoke the world into existence, everything that exists, he spoke it into existence. He gave it the energy to work and to keep on working. That's why the sun rises and sets every day at the same time. That's why it provides the earth with heat and energy. That's why the planets revolve around, around the, the galaxy in their orderly manner, spinning. When God created them, they were created working. They were doing what they were supposed to do. When God formed man in, out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life, he was a functioning individual. He didn't have a start button. He was functioning. All that God does, everything He does is in conformity to His own will. He never does anything outside of His own will. He uses several synonyms to describe how God does what He does. Notice in verses 5 and 9, the words good pleasure. 
He does it at his own good pleasure. He's not coerced. He's not, nobody's twisting his arm. It's, it's his pleasure to do these things. Notice in verse uh, 11, the word counsel. Who does he counsel with? Himself. Notice the word will in verse 5, 9, and 11. All these words give force to the emphasis of God's sovereignty for including the Jewish believers in the church, which is headed up by Christ. And he did it all because of the good pleasure and counsel of his own will. The third thing we see here is God's preeminence. His predestination. We see His power. And we see His preeminence. Notice what He says. So that we, in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. This is His preeminence. The third function of the Spirit, according to these verses, is the glorification of Christ. That's why the Spirit came. To glorify Christ. And so all that the Spirit does in working out God's predestined, powerful plan is to glorify Christ. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In verse 12, Paul continues the thought of verse 11, saying that the Spirit calls God's elect in order that we, in this case the Jews, that we who were first to trust in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's what it's for. That's why he did it. So that he would be praised. So that he would be glorified. Not so that we would be glorified in ourselves. But so that he would be glorified. That's why we're here. That's why we walk through those doors. That's why we encourage one another and love one another. So that Christ will be glorified. Man is redeemed for the purpose of restoring the divine image that was marred by sin in the garden. God's desire is that His creatures would give Him glory by both proclaiming and displaying His glory in their lives. See, this is what people see. When they see us in the world and we're not like the world and we have a different view of things around us, they see us and they... they what they're really seeing is the glory of God in our lives. They're seeing Christ worked out every day as we live. This is the reason He redeems us. Scripture always presents salvation from God's perspective in order that, we, that He might get the full credit for it. Listen. Listen to me carefully. When we stand before Christ, there won't be anything said about us. Because we have nothing that we can say about ourselves. It will all be said about Him. 
what you did, Lord. How you saved, Lord. How you redeemed, Lord. It's all about Christ. God seeks glory for the right reasons because he's worthy. We seek glory for the wrong reasons because we're sinful. Now, one more word I want to call your attention to here before we look at the human perspective is the word trusted. Notice that word trusted in verse 12. Who first trusted in Christ. It says that we, that the trust was started in the past and continues on in the present. This is what Paul refers to in Corinthians as being saved. We're, we're not just saved. We're being saved. It continues on. You're saved at a certain point in time when you, when you see yourself as a lost sinner and you believe in Christ and you trust Christ for the salvation that He gives, offers to you and your will is drawn to Him and He becomes your treasure and your, your trust. And then you continue on being saved day after day after day. It is, a, it is not a past tense thing. It is a present tense thing. We're being saved every day that we live. Man does not will to hear God. But he gives us the ability to trust. In other words, our predestined salvation including our eternal and boundless blessings are so designed that they will bring They're designed to bring God continual glory. Continual glory. That means when you go to bed at night, you're giving glory to God. When you wake up in the morning, you're giving glory to God. You go through the day, you're giving glory to God. You're thankful for what He gives you. You, You're you're working for the glory of God. You're living for the glory of God. You're raising your family for the glory of God. You're using the things that God has given you for the glory of God. How often we forget this. Now let's look at the human perspective very quickly. I'm running out of time. We come to verse 13. And there's a bit of a sticky spot here in theology. We have this age-old argument centered around the will of man. Notice what he says. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is the human perspective. You see, we're, we're, all, we're all really big on our own will, aren't we? I can do what I want. I can make decisions that I want to make. I have a will. And that's true. You do have a will in the perspective of where you live. You have to be alive to have a will. You realize that, don't you? But what happens when a person dies? Do they still have a will? 
No, they don't. They're dead. They can't will anything. But if that person were made alive again, then they would be able to decide things. This is what God does. You see, man is dead in sin and trespasses. Paul writes it in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, You who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Well, if you're dead, how do you walk? We're spiritually dead. And spiritual death is just as dead as physical death when it occurs. It has no will. It has no way to answer or do anything. It can't choose anything. It can't decide anything. It does not answer to God because it can't answer. And it don't, does not want to answer. It only operates in the sphere in which it is active. And that's sin. You can will to sin and that's what you do. That's what people do. It's the only thing they can do. And everything they do outside of the grace of God in Christ is sinful. Even the good things that we call good are sinful. But then, God by an act of creation causes the dead spirit of people to come alive. And now that they're now that they're living spiritually, they can see Christ and they can and they willingly come to Christ because he's the answer for their sin problem. It's called the new birth. It's called regeneration. Jesus said, man is so incapable of hearing him because that is not what he prefers. He doesn't prefer to hear God. Uh, I've, I've witnessed it many times. Be talking to somebody about sports or hunting or something they like, and then you interject the gospel and they change instantly. It's like a deer in the headlights. They just don't, they don't want to hear it. They don't see it. Some people are bold enough to say, I don't want, I don't want any of that. And that's the truth. They don't want it. Because they can't see it. Jesus said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it the springs, the issues of life. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There's only one way a person can hear God. And that is through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to hear God's voice. And that happens through the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. You ever wonder why people refuse the plea to forsake their evil ways? It's because they don't want to forsake their evil ways. They don't want to because they hate God. And they don't want him as a part of their life. Isn't that what the Jews said? We will not have this man rule over us. We are God's people by heritage. We won't have him ruling over us. 
They didn't realize that they were dead in their sins and on their way to punishment. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you do. It's all you can do. Now, there are two thoughts here. First of all, man is imprisoned in sin. It is a, it is a prison as sure as any prison exists. They're imprisoned behind the bars of their own trespasses and their own sin. And they cannot change that position on their own. Can't be changed. It is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But Psalm 110 verse 3, listen to what it says. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. See, when God's power comes, it overrides that unwillingness and brings to light the gospel and shows Christ as the answer. I remember it very clearly when it happened to me back in 1971. God's people must be made willing, and He makes them so. This is the beauty of preaching the gospel. See, I can preach it and I don't have to worry about what it does because I can't control what it does. I just preach it and God does the rest. And so we have this great mystery. I'm going to end with this poem. I I love this poem. It's called The Potter's House. To the potter's house I went one day and watched him while molding the vessels of clay. And many a wonderful lesson I drew as I noticed the process the clay went through. Trampled and broken, downtrodden and rolled to render more plastic and fit for the mold. How like the clay that is human, I thought, when in heavenly hands to perfection brought, for self must be cast as the dust at his feet before it is ready for service made meet. And pride must be broken and self-will lost, all laid on the altar, whatever the cost. But lo, by and by, a delicate vase of wonderful beauty and exquisite grace It was once vile clay. Ah, yes, yet how strange the potter has wrought so marvelous a change. Not a trace of earth, not a mark of the clay. The fires of the furnace have burned them away. Wondrous skill of the potter. The praise is his due, in whose hands to perfection and beauty it grew. Thus, with souls lying still, Content in God's hands that do not his power of working withstand. They are molded and fitted a treasure to hold. Vile clay now transformed into purest of gold.
That's what the Christian life looks like to God. He's working His work in us through Christ and for Christ's glory. So that one day He will bring it all together. Everything in heaven and earth, all the angels, all the human souls, everything that exists to be brought into one in Christ. So that He receives the glory for it all. For He's the only one in all of the universe that is worthy to receive it. That's God's work of salvation. And that's what we're going to see in John 11. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There are some wonderful things in that chapter that I am just dying to teach you. Hopefully we'll start there next week. I pray that God's working in your life. If you're not a believer, then you're just hearing words. Hasn't gotten to your heart. Let God speak to your heart. Let God show you who you are. If you've trusted Him, you're His, you're His child. He loves you. He's, he saved you for His glory. He's working His plan out by you and me. If you're not His child, if you haven't repented of your sins, do it today. Trust Christ. Make Him the treasure of your life. And follow Him in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your glory. We thank you for what we've seen today. Lord, I'm so glad to be back home with with my church and with my wife and with the people that I love. I pray that you would work in us that work to work out your plan so that one day all of us together We'll be able to sing in chorus in unison to the praise of His glorious grace that is found in the Beloved, in Christ. It's all yours, Lord, and it's all ours because of you and your glorious inheritance. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.